0: So, welcome to this Alan Overy podcast. Um, It's hosted today by me, Richard Cranfield. I'm a partner at Alan Overy uh, and chairman of the Global Corporate Group. Uh, Our guest today is Sir Douglas Flint. Douglas is, by training, a a chartered accountant. He was Group Finance Director at HSBC from 1995 to 2011. And then he became chairman of HSBC, uh, retiring in 2017. And he's currently chairman of the well-known asset management group Aberdeen, created by the merger of Aberdeen Asset Management and Standard Life. And he's a very distinguished banker. And I I think what is most prominent about him is that he is the only British banker who's been knighted since the financial crisis. Uh, And I think that's a significant endorsement. So Douglas, um, can we pick up a theme which I observe in, in the world of global banking um, which is the way that some banks are moving into investment banking and wholesale banking. Other banks are, are moving into and out of consumer and retail banking. And, and certainly uh, HSBC, I think, has uh, tended to exit from retail banking. And more recently, I think Citi announced in the last year or so that they would exit significantly from consumer banking. H- how do you see that shaping the sort of market of the future?
1: It's a great question. And uh, I think uh, there are lots of people who would love love to know the answer to it. I mean, I think what is driving that is competition. Uh, it's industry dynamics. I think in retail banking, two things are hugely important. One is nowadays to be successful in retail banking, you need scale. And at, a t- at 20 years ago, 30 years ago, uh, international banks could have a a distinctive presence in overseas markets because they had uh, components in their toolkit that were more advanced than perhaps the 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 domestic banks. That's no longer the case. The domestic banks in most countries in the world are sophisticated, enabled by technology, and therefore the sort of the skills advantage is is receding, um, and without scale. It's very difficult to be competitive when you are a foreign bank without a, a a niche. I think the second thing, probably a more important one, is is technology. I mean, in, in retail banking now, a great deal of what banks used to do is being disintermediated by apps. Uh, I mean the payment system is 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 increasingly dominated by apps that allow you to move money. Very simply, um, without the intermediation of a a cheque or or, or or connection to a bank. So you know, I think retail banking is is changing, and 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 certainly as far as the money transmission part of it is concerned, is increasingly being placed on apps rather than than banks. Although banks continue, importantly, to do all the KYC and and hold the wallet, as it were. Investment banking is. I mean, the the name is 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 often. Confusing in the sense that people have different perceptions of what investment banking is. But if you think about the journey we're all on today in terms of the 30 years to net zero, the scale of investment that is going to be required is extraordinary. And while at one end of the, the simplicity scale in banking, lending somebody money to buy a, a shirt or more importantly, buy a house is relatively straightforward as opposed to how do you structure the funding of a 25, 30 year um, infrastructure project and and crowd in money with different risk appetite with different duration, with different liquidity uh, ambitions, desires and so on and so forth. And that's the real skill of investment banking. How do you structure the financing of a complicated multi-year project um, and and bring in the appropriate amount of money uh, with all the different durations and risk appetites to make the project a success and at the same time uh, provide assurance that all the governance and other aspects that investors would look for are in place and will be monitored and reported upon. So, you know, I think investment banking but over the next 20, 30 years is going to be hugely important in, in relation to its core purpose, which is finding ways to fund the investment of the huge transition uh, program that's now being contemplated. So thanks very much.
0: And, and it seems to me, therefore, that the so what you're predicting is is the consumer and resale banking will become more domestically focused and, and local players will will be doing that. Uh, whereas the, the big players, the, you know, the JP Morgans, the HSBCs, the cities will focus on a wholesale banking and investment banking, and that will be part of their core purpose. Is, is that sort of way you th- see it? Yes, I, I mean,
1: that's right. And, and within, I, I mean, kind of in between the two, I think uh, is, um, is is SME banking, because it's, it's a high touch business done well. Um, and, SMEs consume actually many many more products than 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 even large companies because they have you know extraordinarily broad needs and it suits them to go to a single shop where they have a relationship with a banker who's known them for decades and is comfortable about the risk that he's taking and and that's a, I think that's a core element of of banking that, that, that actually drives economies in most markets, because it's the SMEs that actually are the, the drivers of growth in, in, in many, many places. And, and, and really only banks, in my view, can do that successfully, because it is about understanding the risk better, which is a personal touch element. Thanks.
0: And I suppose another place or another area of activity which the banks play in also alongside uh, Aberdeen, for example, is in, in sort of wealth management, private banking, asset management space. And um, certainly you see, I think, several of the, the larger banks reaffirming their interest in, in private wealth and private banking. And for example, I think City has expanded its ambitions to, to, to bank um, people with a net worth, which is Less than the historic figure of around sort of twenty million dollars or twenty-five million dollars. I think they're now talking about five to ten million dollars. How do you think that's going to affect both the banking market and and the asset
1: management world? I think it's two two very different markets. What you talked about. I mean, the the, the five million dollar plus, even the $1 million dollar plus, is, is really a bespoke service for clearly high net worth individuals. Uh, certainly against the, the the average savings of of people in, in, in every country in the world. And I think that that continues to be a very personalized, high touch uh, business and, and very bespoke relationship between a private banker relationship manager and his customer. I think the banks are all increasingly interested in wealth management at the the mass affluence stage, um, the kind of 50,000 pounds and above level to maybe quarter of a million, half a million, that kind of number, because that's where the bulk of the, the money is. And, and, and two things are driving that. One, the fact that there's really no margin in today's interest rate environment in, in taking deposits. I mean, when I started my career in banking, you know, the large element of the profitability of the banks was in the spread between what banks paid for funds and what they could lend them out at. And, and in today's interest rate environment, that's negligible. Also, I think that, that banks can see that there is a a relationship advantage in terms of their, their more attractive customers and helping them manage their money beyond the deposit because the deposit is not a particularly attractive asset for a customer anymore, given the very low interest rate. But I think there's a very different role for banks and, and, and asset managers. Banks, essentially, I think, are, are platforms, which is a very good thing to be nowadays Gatekeepers in terms of saying the only products we'll have on our platform are ones that we have curated for eligibility they do what they say they do the fee structures are right the managers have a track record and we believe that these are good products within the the categories that we've selected is appropriate for our platform for you to buy so you're basically doing the hard work of selecting appropriate products for customers and customers I think are are very keen to see that done on their behalf and will pay a fee for that being done. It's also very difficult for banks to have a dominant share of of what goes through their platforms with their own products. So while they all will have asset management businesses, once you get above 10 12% of the throughput on your own platform of your own product, you begin to get regulatory questions as to whether, in fact, you are pushing your own product to the uh, detriment of of other products from other providers that that would be equally attractive and there, and so, so, so therefore I think banks have to look at it we're going to be we're going to be multi-served in terms of where the product is coming for because that's what clients will want they don't just want to buy um, own label stuff um, and 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 what we will do though is is curate the products that we think are successful and I think that particularly in a world where, Um, savings have grown because of the pandemic for those that are in the mass affluent space because they haven't had the opportunity to consume as much as they might otherwise have done. There's a great desire and a great need for those savings to be uh, more productively invested. Uh, And banks can see there's a a big opportunity, A, to support their customers and their ambition in that regard, but also to generate a, a higher level of fee income rather than spread income from credit risk um uh, which is uh, you know i think going to be a, an important element of retail banking for the mass affluent sector thanks for that um moving away from from sort of the activities and
0: products just thinking a bit about the current environment i mean obviously when we came out of the global financial crisis the the banks were the bad guys uh, as we come out of the pandemic uh, obviously, the, the banks are part of the solution and not the bad guys. It's noticeable, though, that you know, recently, the US banks have posted very, very impressive uh, figures. And you, you, you know, we're waiting to see what the European banks post. But uh, is there going to be a dynamic between the, sort of the European banks and the US banks? And, and how can the banks generally um, place themselves in, as part of this recovery?
1: I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the global financial crisis back in 2008-9, it was clearly uh, uh, caused by and certainly accentuated by the behavior in, in, in many banks. Um, and lessons I I hope, I think, have been learned since that time. This crisis was not caused by the banking system, and in fact, I would reflect that had it not been for the global financial crisis and all the regulatory changes and risk management changes and management changes that took place in the banking system, we would have been in a much worse position because the banks entered this crisis hugely better capitalized, much more liquid. Um, uh, and therefore had the capacity to support the economy, albeit with huge amounts of government uh, support in in terms of guarantees and so on, but with the distribution arms of government policy in getting money to vulnerable uh, individuals and, and businesses that needed support through all the lockdown periods. So, you know, I think the banks actually had the opportunity to demonstrate that they could actually meet a social purpose extraordinarily well. And that has been very good for them. As a consequence of low interest rates and QE and, and all the other things that central banks and governments made happen, um, the credit losses to date from economic downturn have been significantly less than were projected uh, at the beginning. And I hope that that continues. But of course, we're, we're just coming out of the the support measures in most countries, and and while the economies are growing very, very well relative to uh, the last eighteen months, and indeed in some cases um, showing better dynamics than than, than pre-crisis, there, there's still a burden of debt in the economy that that has to be worked through, and you know there are a number of headwinds that are beginning to um, interest people about about that, but. Relative to the US, I mean, you know, the US is an extraordinary system um, or a, ma- a banking market in the sense that you have four or five or six mega players and then thousands of, of small community banks. The American banking system still enjoys a, a fee profile and a bank and, and a spread on deposit taking that is the envy of european uh, including uk banks and and that's just structural in europe banking to a large degree in many countries is seen as a as social provision and therefore is kind of regulated to make a modest amount of money rather than a, a lot of money whether that's a good thing or not we could we could have a very vigorous debate on but the U.S. banking system is is designed in good times to generate significant amounts of capital, which it also enables it to respond well in in difficult times. And at the moment, it's uh, it's doing extraordinarily well because uh, credit losses are low and uh, investment banking revenues are extremely high. And the U.S. banks have a, a dominant market share in 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 that. So it's as good as it gets for. For the US, the the, the European banks, including UK, have less of a a, a toolkit, uh, particularly the continental European banks bar one or two against uh, the big international banks. So I think we will continue to see uh, the the US uh, dominate in terms of profitability. Of course, their, 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 their domestic market is much bigger. The Chinese banks will give them a run for the money in good times as well, given the size of their market, but European banks, less so. And there are actually very few European banks. There are many banks based in Europe, but there are very few that are pan-European. Thanks, and
0: just to pick up on the theme, do you think the sort of the banking system is, is in good enough shape to meet the, as you said, the 20 or 30 year transition to net zero, And and, and is it clear to you yet what the role of the banking
1: system will be in that transition? I think it's a great question. Um, is it in good shape to do so? Yes, I think it is. Um, I, you know, I think the, the capital is strong, um, uh, and I think the banks recognise that a significant part of their purpose, of their social contract, as it were, is is supporting and uh, engineering. Um, the allocation of money into the activities and the infrastructure that will help deliver uh, net zero and and, and the sustainability targets that governments around the world uh, are mandating. Uh, I think their role in this is still to be fully defined. I mean, it's simply not Credible to say from a political perspective, um, we're going to meet net zero because we're telling the financial industry to, to do it. You know, I think banks are going to have a, a significant role, along with other financial institutions, in working with government as to what the policy measures need to be to enable uh, asset allocators, whether it's in the asset management industry or in the banking industry, to allocate money to long dated projects. In infrastructure so that w- where people can actually see the full range of risks that they're taking and get a good understanding of what the returns might be. That That is not just about structuring projects. That That is about having clarity on policy and confidence that that policy won't be interrupted for political reasons over the next 20, 30 years. So I think l- lobbying on policy is going to be important, educating their customers that you know, the transition is complex. The transition is, it cannot be done overnight. Um, and there's a, an incredible need to continue to harvest the resources from industries and activities that we will demise over time, but are important to generating the cash flow to invest in the, the, the new industries and invest in, in, in technological and, and research development to create opportunities that they simply don't exist today. So I think banks have got a a real challenge opportunity to think about what their role is, what they can do. It's hugely important that they avoid greenwashing, i.e. projecting a a role and an influence that is beyond their capabilities. And it's also equally foolish of them to make exaggerated statements about what they can do, because they will be held, all businesses will be held to account, and if you make extravagant statements about you know that this is at the core of everything you do and you live breathe and sleep it um, people will challenge you when they see you do something that doesn't look as if it's consistent with that and and of course given the range of businesses that that banks fund and given the range of countries that they're in it is going to be a complicated picture from the leading edge of, of sustainable renewable energy to the transition out of businesses that that need to um, you know, migrate over time to a different way of working. So banks are going to be hugely important, but but they can only work within a, a policy framework that is supportive of the direction of travel rather than in the absence of that framework just being told to get on with it and deliver it on behalf of, of society. They can't do that on their own. Understood.
0: And uh, uh, correct me if I got it wrong, but it, is, it seems from some of your comments that you think that the long-dated investment cycle might be more important and do you think that the sort of the bank stakeholders understand and have an appetite for, you know, more longer dated investments and a longer investment cycle, given, given what we're looking at? Um, yes,
1: yes, I think they do. Um, and and if they don't, they need to be guided to that that role. I mean, as 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 as, as you know, in the UK, the 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 government is looking at creating a a, a long dated asset facility to. Um, attract more money into uh, long-dated infrastructure that's needed and and if you stand back and reflect one of the one of the constraints against history is the the defined benefit schemes that would have been the natural takers of that risk because they had recurring monies coming in from pension contributions and they had you know an average um, duration of 20 30 years in among their uh, employee base; those schemes are now all but gone, and and as they mature, um, are becoming short term in the duration and and very um, bond like in their investment because effectively they're dealing with a demographic that is aging and and ultimately um, passing on. So you know, again, I, I, there's a great deal of discussion in the UK at the moment rightly so, that whether we need to make some adjustment to policy measures that were taken around defined contribution schemes that were actually structured in a way to promote liquidity and certainty of valuation or low volatility valuation throughout the the investment period, uh, which actually worked against money going into longer dated and more complicated assets. And it's always been a a kind of a frustration for me that that you know we see the sovereign wealth funds of other countries the canadian and australian pension systems investing in uk infrastructure where uk pension monies there's not going into uk infrastructure to the same degree and that that just seems seems wrong and 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 there are some regulatory changes that would be needed to allow money to go into long dated assets but that again means uh, educating the customer base that, that if they're 32 years old and not going to retire until they're 65, they don't need to worry too much about whether the mark-to-market of their investments is the same on a quarterly basis because they're investing for the long term, they're investing in the productive capacity that will create economic growth over their lifetimes and will also create the jobs and environment that they want for their kids and grandkids. And that that is, I think, one of the, the key messages that, that has to get out to uh, society around the world, which is it's not just about the returns you make in your money now, it's the returns alongside. What is your money doing? What is it doing in, in, in relating and in building productive capacity and jobs for the future? And and it's so, it, therefore, it's, you know, it, to take a trivial example, you know, gaming and dating and, and uh, social media apps may be attractive things to invest in, but they don't do much to create the, the the productive capacity of the future neither do mortgages or or government bonds to to some degree putting money into you know power generation power transmission technology development is is, has got to be given a greater priority for the savings of this and future generations if we're going to succeed in building the world that we want in 2050.
0: Okay and just reflecting on the competitive landscape that the banks are operating under. I mean, I think it's – you often heard it said in a a number of sectors and businesses that, you know, life has never been more competitive. Uh, And certainly, you know, if you look at sort of the banking world, as you mentioned, you know, you've got payment systems, you've got a lot of challenger banks, you've got uh, people providing apps, you've got fintech, you've got the fangs. If you were still chairing or an executive in a sort of global bank, what would your reflections be about the competitive challenge over the next five or ten years?
1: I, I'll get two very strong views. One is it's stimulating. I, I have no fear of competition. I think competition, effectively, is is, is hugely beneficial to to the system and to the, the customers of the system. But I'd also say we need a level playing field. I mean, the the, the banking system would have been. In, in days gone by, or could have been in days gone by, described as uh, you know the 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 first platform where effectively people were part of a system which enabled them to do a number of things. It enabled them to get record keeping of their income and savings. It enabled them to transmit money, enabled them to have a relationship they could borrow money. So, I mean, it was a platform business, but it was heavily regulated in terms of what the data that banks gathered could be used for. So, banks didn't use the data that they had to sell people other products or to share that data. Um, And I think that was right. There were constraints on on banks being involved in other businesses. And again, that was right in many countries that didn't have those controls. It saw activities that, that were very damaging to to the deposit bases of, of such institutions. So the second thing that's an obsession in a kind of way is like if we're going to have a, a, an open banking landscape, we need a level playing field. So I'm not saying that banks would want to get into... Um, the activities of the social media or internet giants. But if they're allowed to go into banking and get access to all the data, customer data that banks have, then wouldn't it be helpful for the banks to have access to the kind of customer data that a Facebook and a Google and an Amazon have on their customers to help it, help the banking system underwrite better and, and so on and so forth. So can we have a level playing field? I mean, you know, if it, Walks and talks like a, a bank, it's a bank, even if it's called something in the social media world. And and I think that, that there's a, a level of restriction uh, for all good reasons as to what banks can do that is not applied to other companies in the digital space that are now providing services that compete with banks. And I think that it's worth having a conversation as to whether that's right or not. Um, but competition's good, good for customers, good for uh Uh, good for the industry, it has to be subject to equivalent regulation, because at the end of the day, it's one of, I think, society's uh, fundamental requirements that people go to bed at night and feel comfortable that their, their savings are secure, and that they know where they are, and that they know who to talk to if they see something that doesn't doesn't look right. You know, I think that's, that's fundamental. And you, know, you can see the debate around the world in, in what is a very, very broad area around crypto assets and the role of cryptocurrencies and so on and so forth, which have significantly different and much lesser regulation than, than traditional fiat currencies have. And you know, at some point, are we going to look back and, and scratch your head and say, why did we, how did we let that happen?
0: I mean, it's, it's sometimes difficult to comment on regulators, particularly if you're still uh, operating in a regulated activity. But it, what are your views about the way the currently sort of the banking regulatory regime works? I mean, you've made, you've made the point about there must be a level playing field. But uh, do, do you feel that the regulators are proactive enough and are they are they active enough as, to, to keep up with developments as we see them like cryptocurrencies and blockchain and things like that?
1: I think in the UK we have... You know, globally leading regulators in terms of thinking about policy and so on. I think that inevitably, the actions at the fringes of the financial industry always are ahead of where regulators are because, by definition, they're innovating um, and doing things that that haven't been foreseen in the regulatory framework, and it has to catch up. Which is why I think it's hugely important that the interaction between Regulators, supervisors, and the institutions that they have responsibility for is 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 a very interactive one, um, so that they get a you know good feel for what's going on in the marketplace and 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 decide whether that's w- what they want to happen. And it really does come back to having a shared view on what the purpose of the system is. I think, if in a personal view, I think that the the balance between competition and competitiveness has been skewed too much towards competition. As I said, I think competition is good, but we also have to have a, a competitive system in terms of making sure that we have institutions that are capable of delivering what we want from them. And that means making them uh, robust and, and, and sustainable. I mean, I, I, I one of the things I learned when I was finance director of HSBC is the stock of capital is... Hugely important, but the flow of capital is even more important. So, in other words, the fact that you're well capitalized is fine. But what's more attractive to a rating agency, and I think to a regulator, is in the event that something that unforeseeable happens and you lose some of your stock of capital, how quickly can you repair it? And that means you have to have a profitable banking system. You know, it, it's interesting that in the global financial crisis, the the economies that suffered the least were the ones where the banking systems were profitable. Now. That, that then means that you need to have a responsibility in the banking system that the privilege of being allowed to operate in a system where there are, are decent margins uh, means that you don't go off the reservation and doing crazy things to try and augment margins that are too low in, in relation to where your investors' expectations are in terms of returns. So, you know, I, I, I do think that, I mean, it's being talked about now that moving some way towards putting competitiveness into regulatory um, a regulatory framework, and I mean, I think you know, to use an analogy, the the energy issues at the moment in relation to the new entrants coming in with very attractive pricing, but then not having uh, the capacity to absorb the the price asymmetries between the wholesale market and the retail market hasn't worked particularly well for consumers. So, you know, the same analogy could have, could apply in banking. So, I, I I just think there needs to be a, a a strong and interactive relationship between regulators and industry as to what we are trying to do and being very robust with people that move off the reservation in terms of that's not what you're there to do but being accommodative with those that are attempting to do the right thing but occasionally come up against circumstances or make mistakes where things don't go the way that they should but it's a heck of a difficult job and uh, It's always changing and I have a genuinely huge respect for the the regulators around all the major uh, financial markets um, in the context of all the things that could go wrong. And if you think, as I said at the beginning, the the steps that we're taking to make the system more robust after the global financial crisis have been fundamental in allowing us to deal with the, the strains of the pandemic without there being a financial crisis at the same time. Thanks.
0: Could, could I ask you a bit about your own career and some of the changes which you've gone through? I mean, I, so stepping back from it, you know, you were a partner in the big four, became the group finance director for HSBC, so very senior executive position, become non-executive chairman of HSBC and now you're non-executive chairman of Aberdeen. How has that transition happened and what, what's been notable about moving through those roles and what, what are your reflections and what's your advice to others?
1: I've been very lucky in my career in terms of doing things that I have hugely enjoyed and I've had the privilege of working with people from whom I have learned a great, a great deal. Um, I, I would also, you know, make reference to the fact that I had the, 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 the privilege of being on the BP Board for six years. Um, and, and chaired the audit committee there in the year of the the, the tragic spill in, in the Gulf of Mexico, and you learn a lot in these situations, particularly when it's in, in an industry that you're not embedded in in terms of your, your 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 career history. So, you know, all experience is good experience, even when it's pretty difficult and, and full on at the, the time. I mean, I've always believed that there are only three things that that matter in in in, in your career. One is do you believe in the purpose of the organization that you are part of do you enjoy and have respect for the people you're working with and do you believe that you're capable of making a contribution and 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 if these any of these are are no then you shouldn't be there and if all of these are yes then you can think about logistics and all the other attributes about whether you would go there or go somewhere else so you know HSPC was a fabulous experience, a fantastic organisation, one of the most global banks, founded upon um, trade and investment flows, and and you know trade and investment flows will never go away. It's a hugely important um, business to to make uh, happen. That one of the reasons that attracted me to Aberdeen after HSBC is I, I wasn't going to go into banking again but i i I genuinely am interested in the demographic challenge of an aging population and inadequate savings because we've seen state provision move to a pretty modest level corporate provision has moved from giving people a defined benefit to simply giving them a pot of of money and and i think that you know among the challenges faced by the world alongside climate change and biodiversity loss and pandemics and so on is how do you, we've got an aging population a population that has expectations of living longer yet is saving significantly less than it should to be able to enjoy the kind of retirement that they would hope for and and, and therefore i fundamentally am interested in being part of a, an investment uh, marketplace that 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 helps people understand what they need to do and gives them the the products and the tools that they need to manage that uh, individual exposure. So it's, you know, in many ways, HSBC is a very different organization from Aberdeen, um, but we still uh, manage on behalf of ultimate beneficiaries in Aberdeen over 500 billion pounds of of money. So while the company might be small uh, in terms of its market capitalization relative to HSBC, it has a significant role in the UK and beyond in terms of people uh, people's um savings and, and and retirement planning um so it's uh it's uh it's a challenging but fascinating um environment to work in
0: and what's it like being on the board of um a major listed institution not just uk i mean over the last 10 or 20 years obviously life has got more regulated and i think harder for directors does that change the way you look at it would you be joining the board of a bank if you were you know 50 or 55 and not at the sort of the end of your career as a non-executive?
1: I would but um, uh, I, I absolutely accept what you say that, that not everyone um, puts their hand up to those roles. I mean I, I genuinely believe that it's a it's a necessary responsibility for people who have got the skill set and the experience to serve on on public company boards and indeed large private company boards to ensure that the strategic choices, the performance management of of the the executive and the the accountability to stakeholders through governance is, is properly executed. I mean, it's a it's hugely important for society that that investment. Money is allocated well, and 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 delivers against its ex, delivers against society's expectations. So, yeah, I would do it. You're absolutely right. the The role has changed, or has I'm not sure the role has changed. The accountability and the visibility has changed dramatically. You know, and I think that um, we could have an interesting discussion about whether some of the ambitions on the shape of society that are now being embedded in corporate responsibility for p- particularly public companies around diversity and compensation and climate change and, and, and those areas that in many ways are public policy choices, many of the accountabilities are being delegated into the, the corporate sector to be part of the delivery of those political public policy choices. In many ways, that's understandable because the the corporate sector has a huge influence by its behaviour and the way that it engages its own workforce. But but it's a it's a different framework than 20 years ago, when when perhaps the accountability was more around the the narrower objectives of of um, of, of, of financial performance and good behaviour, but not not all the aspects of of, of social policy that now it's being built into corporate responsibility. Having said that, I mean, that's, you know, we live in a a, a society where the, the shape of future society is determined by politicians and and accountability is spread through um, individuals, corporates um, and, and um, public institutions is to deliver that. And I think, you know, again, there needs to be good engagement with, Government um policymakers in terms of what it what is feasible and 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 what time scale it can be delivered over, but it's certainly a a much broader set of accountabilities and responsibilities and I think sometimes the 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 scrutiny of those accountabilities by special interest groups uh, can be quite intrusive to the broader purpose of of organizations because special interest groups are only interested in one very narrow aspect of a company's footprint whereas the board has a responsibility in aggregate so it's it's challenging but i think it's a very rewarding thing to do
0: and and it, and it feels as though this this delegation by society and government onto onto on, onto company boards is going to be a continuing trend and so I suppose I mean, are, are boards generally, you know, up to it? Are they, I mean, not commenting on your own boards, but you know, are generally are the are the pool of directors and, and boards up to shouldering that responsibility uh, if if it continues to, to to face that delegation from society?
1: It's a very good question. I certainly think that it requires nomination committees' chairman to reflect broadly on the skills they need on the board and, and and you know and I think to think about diversity in the the proper use of the word in terms of skills, experience and expertise as opposed to badges. Because, you know, if if one of the things that, that society increasingly is interested in is the and I hate the word, the culture of 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 corporates, then that's a different skill to someone who's um, built their career as an operations manager or a sales director or as a chief executive, in terms of getting a sense of what drives individual behaviours and aspirations, as opposed to do people meet the targets that they've been given in terms of things that can be measured in in in, in physical or financial output. So, I I you know I think it's it's a very interesting avenue. But I do think it comes back to something that I think was a very big change in or a good change in, 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 in UK corporate life, which is uh, requiring boards to define their purpose. I mean it was it sounds very easy, but when you get down as to what is your purpose and and, and you know it's not about meeting a certain return or something because that's the that's the product of the purpose um but when people had to think about what is our purpose and how do we justify the 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 the, the role we have in society it's a, it's a very good thing to reflect uh, upon and once you've done that it then drives what kind of uh, skill set do you need on the board and it also helps you deal with issues that people might bring to you and say you should have a position of this and you can reflect back to your purpose and say well having a position on some social aspect, is that, is, is that part of our purpose? Maybe it is, maybe it's not, but it, it, it helps you allocate your time better. But yeah, no, I think boards will be more diverse in the proper sense of the word in terms of the experience that they gather to reflect on strategy and execution and uh, and actually galvanizing the workforce. One of the things that's very interesting and different from 20, 30 years ago is that the workforce from the very top to the the bottom is now much more engaged on the kind of place we want to be and to work rather than this is the job i do and i get paid this amount of money to do it and that's it Uh, particularly younger people i really want to believe in the purpose of the company the way it does business and the interaction it has both with its customers and society and it shapes um, corporate behaviors to a degree that was not the case 20 30 years ago and that's stimulating. I mean we spend as a board quite a lot of time with uh, new entrants and young people in the company because they have a, a a very clear idea of of what they think the company should be and I you know I think that's exciting to hear.
0: So Douglas thank you very much indeed. I've th- that's been the most fascinating 40 minutes. Um, We've taken slightly longer than I planned, but um asked you all the questions that, that I had and, and it's really, really interesting.